busyness as a proxy for productivity. In the absence of clear indicators of what it means to be productive and valuable in their jobs, many knowledge workers turn back toward an industrial indicator of productivity, doing lots of stuff in a visible manner. Cal Newport, Deep Work. Hey, friends, welcome to another episode of Intentional Living and Leadership with me, Cal Walters. Thank you so much for being here today. If you're new to us, every two weeks, we release a new episode discussing ways to live a more intentional life, inspire others, and make a difference in the world. Today, I'm so excited to bring you my guest, Juliet Funt. Juliet Funt is the CEO of White Space at Work, and she helps professionals learn the pivotal difference between activity and productivity. She helps executives, managers, and teams answer that critical question, what thoughts deserve my attention today? She has been called a warrior in the battle against reactive busyness, and I know we can all benefit from that. Juliet regularly wows audiences as a high-impact, high-energy speaker, including speaking at the Global Leadership Summit. You'll see that today. What a wonderful speaker she is. Her clients include a number of Fortune 100 companies and span a wide array of industries from financial services to technology, manufacturing, and executive workshops to audiences as large as 7,000 people. And you'll hear today, she also is interested in helping out the military community. As a busy corporate speaker and consultant, business owner, wife, and mother of three young boys, she practices on a daily basis the white space concept she shares with her clients and with us today. And whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening to this on your favorite podcast platform, you can find show notes to this episode at calwalters.me, just my name.me. And without any further ado, please enjoy this thought-provoking interview with Juliet Funt. Juliet, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Great to be here. It is such a privilege to have you here. I learned about you on the Craig Rochelle Leadership Podcast. And as I was listening to you describe your work, you know, rarely do I have such a strong, positive reaction to someone speaking mm. about their work. And I can oh, just tell nice. you, it was, it was such a visceral reaction because I could just relate to the need for your work in every organization, but certainly in my organization, which is the U.S. Army. So thank you so much for being here today and sharing those insights. Sure. And I, I was telling you as we got to know each other that we do a lot of corporate work and we've had and a number of people say that our work would be very important in the military, but honestly, we've just never gone there. So I'm hoping this is a really interesting conversation that opens that opens up that conversation for us. Absolutely. I'd love to start. Can you just share a little bit about your journey, both personally, spiritually, and through business to getting to this concept of white space and how it was conceived? Sure. <clears throat> so the concept of white space is that there is a missing element in life and in work. And you can imagine it best if you sort of imagine the periodic table of the elements, if all of a sudden one of the tiles just dropped out and there was no salt or there was no nitrogen, everything would fall apart. We have a very passionate belief that there is an element called white space that's missing from work. And white space is the time, the open, thoughtful time that used to exist in between things. The name was actually derived from the white spaces that are on a calendar in between things. So if you can, uh, you can see that there is none of that anymore as we have our back-to-back -back meetings that have now morphed into our back-to-back -back Zooms. 
And that element of having transition time, tiny sips of it or longer stretches of it, is so critical for strategy and execution and creativity and recovery and all sorts of things that are vital in the workplace. And there's a very common um, saying when you're an expert or an author is that you teach what you need to learn. And that you, you say that over and over and over and over. So I am a hot, my husband calls me the energizer bunny. I am a very fast paced, quick, high energy person who would work until I fell apart if I didn't constantly use my own techniques to talk to myself about the importance of stepping back and strategy and pausing and recovery. And so I think that a lot of leaders end up gravitating toward a personality flaw of their own, becoming fascinating with solving it, fascinated with solving it, and then becoming so fascinated that that personal solution then becomes their, their vocation. And I think that that's probably what happened for me. And I've heard you talk before about the spiritual journey too, and about you as a mom discovering, you know, being those late nights, which I think any parent can relate yeah. to, especially moms with your kids and thinking, wow, this is this unadulterated time where I can just think. And that's so rare in the current world we work in. It's funny that you bring up that story because I, I don't remember where you might have heard that, but it's when my kids who were terrible, terrible sleepers, I have three boys now, 10, 12, 14, but they, they, we, we laid with them every single night while they fell asleep. And I always say that with the hesitate. I know we're going to get email from grandparents saying how wrong <laughs> we were, but they, it worked for us. Yeah, and, hey. But there was this time every night, sometimes multiple times per night, where I was lying in a dark bedroom, no phone, no distractions, no nothing. And I'm just basically lying and waiting for somebody to fall asleep. And I think at some point I did the math and it was 353,000 minutes of my life had been spent lying in a black room. And, <laughs> But what I found was that trapped in that really dark white space, that all sorts of really interesting things started happening because I couldn't use a fix of any kind of activity to get my brain distracted. So it just was open and I, I felt feelings and I designed products and I clarified things in my marriage and I um, got I gave myself executive feedback because I could think about how was I that day as a leader and how did I talk to people? And there was all sorts of topics over years of doing that that only came up in that quiet time. And now that my children don't need that, it's such a struggle to make sure that I have enough of that interlaced through the day because I don't have my forced white space anymore. I think a lot of people, Juliet, when they hear this, I would imagine they do. They're like, hey, I agree with this. I think we need more of this. Why do you think that we still don't solve the problem? Or why are we not making progress or more progress in this area? So uh, it's just such a rich question and it brings to mind too many things to talk about at the same time. Um, in corporations and companies and organizations, and we work in nonprofits, we work in corporations, as I said, we're learning more about military, but we don't have a lot of visceral experience. I can tell you from the corporate side, there is a worship of busyness and a fear of openness. So the fear is that openness equals nothingness. The fear is that when you're not being active, you're not being productive. But that all speaks to an enormous lack of trust in the value of thinking. And, and people have an individual lack of trust also in the value of thinking. I think when they, if you think about productivity, you watch somebody who running around and doing and moving and you get like a little fast forward person in the office, you think about that person. Then contrast that with if you put a team in a conference room all day long and they just sat there all day long and they did nothing and they played with Play-Doh and they had conversations and you didn't see anything happening, but then 
at the very last moment of the day they came up with a game-changing breakthrough idea, that would be a more productive day than the team that's just running and sweating. But the running and sweating is what's worshipped in our culture and the martyrdom of working late nights and answering email on the weekends. And so activity gets more press than productivity. And I think that that value system is a really, really big part of why we fall apart. I also think that we are craving things at a different level. Um, in fact, post-virus, I think that this has really accelerated. We call it NLP activity, nervous, lonely, panicked. So there's that there's not only is there this baseline of I got to stay busy, but now nervous. There's all this background anxiety coursing through our fingertips. We dare not take a moment to rest. Lonely, we're, we're yeah. reaching out to... to Compense, compensate for our loneliness by more emails, more Zoom calls, more meetings. And then this little dose of panic where if we did stop right now, maybe we're very afraid of what emotion would smack us in the back of the head. And so there's all sorts of different topical and classic reasons why we avoid thoughtful time. But that's actually where a lot of magic can happen for companies, especially for leadership, to be able to teach the lesson of stepping back to pause before you act, to pause before you get some great business idea and already start deploying people and resources before you've even sat with it for a day. That pausing, that open time has myriad uh, applications for leaders and teams. Yeah, that I can relate to all of that because I think sometimes when I reflect back on my leadership, a lot of my leadership has been in a infantry officer setting in the military. And I think I, when I think about my value, it, it's oftentimes it felt like my value was in pushing the team to do more, to push deadlines up, to deliver faster. So there's always this pressure, oftentimes in the military, because a lot of times we come back from these combat settings back into the you know non-deployed environment, and we have this. To keep that pace and feel like we have to fill every minute. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the statistics that you've found about the impact of just this kind of busy work and help us yeah. understand the, maybe some, quantify it for us a little bit about the impact of this. Yes. And quantifying is actually a specialty of ours that to our knowledge, we're the only people in the world that really put dollars to this so that it is a conversation that I'm really passionate about. Uh, we, we ask a lot of teams what wasteful work they're doing, and then we use salary data to attach to that to quantify it. We usually see about a million dollars of annual waste for every 50 people in a group, Wow! in an organization, in a team. Now that is, I'll tell you what that's comprised of. Unnecessary emails, unnecessary CCs, meetings where people are neither benefiting nor contributing, and of course that translates now to Zoom meetings or calls reports that are written past the level of tactical efficiency and uh, interruption recovery time. We measure how many times, how many minutes are you losing because you're being interrupted by people with no impulse control or by IM or by Teams or by chat or by Yammer and then you can't get back to work. It doesn't me measure all sorts of other ways. It doesn't measure unnecessary time prepping decks. It doesn't ma measure hmm. the length of classic email. We only measure CCFYI. So there are all sorts of different things that are probably heightening that number. Now, for those of you that are statistically detail-oriented, I'll tell you that self-reporting data, when you ask people to talk about themselves, it always has some frailty to it because they don't do it as accurately as they should. So what we do to compensate for that is we cut all those numbers in half before we quantify them, which means that the real self-reported number is $2 million for every 50 people or a million for 25. So just oh setting goodness. that scene. 
And what is the mirage of all of this is that those are the things in the way of faster. So you want to work faster, but you're jumping over unnecessary hurdles in the course of getting where you're getting. That's the opposite of faster. That's showing off just a lot of touch points in the day as opposed to being able to actually execute things faster. It exhausts people. It keeps them farther away from the meaningful work that inspires them. So if you're doing these shallow little touch points all day long, you don't have that sense at the end of the day where you pack up and you say, I, I touched something meaningful. I, I was of service or I made a difference or I added to the cause. Or It's very hard to touch the heart of service when it's just about checking, 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 checking boxes all day long. Um, and of course, strategically, it creates enormous amounts of rework and wasted time because you go, you say, go in that direction and you run, 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 and then you realize you're going in the wrong direction. So without strategy, um, there, are, there are myriad costs. And I, you and I were talking, I can't remember if this was before we went on the air or afterwards, but a Bloomberg article just came out that said that 45% of workers now are burnt out uh, six to eight weeks into COVID and that um, the workday is three hours longer. So right now, it has gone from an important business tactical awareness to have to a desperate crisis. Mm. If we don't find a way to take work off people's plates right now, stupid, low-value work, I don't know how they're going to get through phase two. And I have to tell you, while being a really optimistic person, I've been having conversations for a while now with leaders. I don't think that phase two is going to be easier. I think mm. that in certain ways it's going to be easier, but in certain ways it's going to be harder because it in phase one of virus response, we had an enormous amount of stress and pain, but it was also a lot of adrenaline. And adrenaline does alleviate a lot of exhaustion and fatigue. And in phase two, we're going to have a, still a lot of adjustment, but without that adrenaline, people's yeah. tanks are empty already. And so we just have to find tactical ways to reduce those touch points. And um, I don't think I've ever really been more concerned for the individual mm -hmm. workers, um, honestly, than I am right now. Well, I think it just highlights uh, how thankful I am for your work and what you do. And I think you help us get from just being busy. And it goes, goes back, I think it was in a Cal Newport book I read about just this busyness paradox about how people mm -hmm. tend to just default to busyness in a very public way to show their value. Showing off and, the badge. Yeah, in the absence of productivity. So I'd like to talk, because it seems to me that in a lot of ways, this is really a paradigm shift for a lot of leaders. I mean, they're having to completely flip the current paradigm yeah. on its face. So tell us a little bit, you've talked before about some of these email tactics and 2D and 3D. Can you talk to us about some of these maybe more tactical tools that leaders could start implementing to, to really start to shift their mindset uh, into this, uh, I don't know, more productive way of doing work? Yes, it is foreign. But what you have to imagine is if you pay Sally $60,000 a year and Sally says that a third of her work is waste, then you're wasting a third of Sally's salary every year. So that that simple idea may allow leaders that are on the periphery of forward thinking of this kind to kind of join in. And then when you join in, you start saying, okay, well, how could I really change that? Now, <clears throat> I will tell you that we do have tools that individuals use, but it is difficult to change it individually. I'm not saying it's mm -hmm. not important, but if you're, a, you're, if you're a worker in a team, you will defer up to the larger cultural values about busy work. 
But if you're a leader over even a small group of people, you can begin to make communal changes in your mindset. And it's that mindset shift that is more important than the tactical shift. Because once you start really absorbing, what if thoughtful time had value? What if I'm not strategizing enough? What if stepping back would give me a better sense of what kind of leader I actually am and how people perceive me and what I'm doing every day? Once you accept the mindset shift, then the tactical actually becomes easier. And one of the things that we're, I, I want to say, accused of a lot, but it's the wrong word, the, the things that come up a lot in our longer work with companies where we're doing a six or eight month culture change with them is that they say, well, some of this is common sense. And we say, yeah, that's great. I wish it was common practice because <laughs> common sense and common practice uh -huh. are two incredibly yes. different things. So if you say, totally. you know, isn't it funny that we all know that reply to all is the death of productivity and yet we get some little announcement that says I'm getting engaged and we send it to 400 people who mm. all then have to say hooray for you and I love you and send me a picture of the dress. And, and so it's common sense and common practice are just Mm. binary in a lot of companies. And that is the, the point of having conversations like this is to advance common sense into common practice. So leaders that are listening, and I know you have a leadership audience, you can do this. Now, the most important mindset that you're going to want to start talking about is called a reductive mindset. And a reductive mindset is mathematical, the sense of removing items. Most companies and organizations have an additive sense. They just add and add and add and add. Where can you cut? Where can you strip? Where can you delegate, postpone? Where can you consolidate? Where can you take reporting that was weekly and make it monthly? Can you take monthly and make it quarterly? So that idea of where can we reduce is really the most important mindset. Right now, again, and I want to keep being topical, <clears throat> I think this content will be evergreen enough that you can keep this for a while, but in this moment of COVID recovery, this reductive mindset also has to have a sense of balancing the plate. So if you have five new, I was on the phone with a pharma leader. They had just been given five new giant COVID-related response tasks. And she said, this isn't waste work. This is incredibly necessary. <clears throat> work that I and my team have to start doing right now. I said, great. What did you remove to make room for it? Mm. And she said, oh, I don't know what you're talking about because we don't, we have an additive yeah. relationship with task lists. So we don't have one that is about removing. And I'll give you an example of this that happened just the other day. You know, we are a business that like all other businesses has been turned upside down. And my assistant who is, who is marvelous and amazing. We've been trying to serve so many people, everybody's in an efficiency panic right now. So we've been really, really, really busy. And I heard in her voice that she was starting to get burnt out. So I immediately started moving her to a four-day work week, which because that's kind of an emergency tactic that I will go to for someone who sounds fried. But then we, we did... Um, uh, sort of a, if you think about when they say organizers say if you buy a sweater you put in the closet you take one out you put in the closet you take one out so that remove one add one fa uh, process is pretty uh, core for us so we went through her list what are all the projects that you're working on Jamie 
and then say, okay, this one, put a spotlight on it. That's really important. This one, is there a vendor that we can pay that can take this off your plate? This one, honestly, we don't need it for a month or two. This one, I have to add to your plate. So there's always a sense of being aware of employee bandwidth and then helping them, coaching them about what's really important because they don't know. They'll assign the same value often to everything that you've handed them. And that all comes from this big picture of having a reductive mindset, which is really the core of it. And I would love to hear your response a little bit about, tell me a little bit more about the reductive or additive aspect of the military, because I think that will lead us to an interesting conversation, Yeah, how it is there. Yeah. <laughs> well, just hearing you talk through that, I'll, so many images pop in my head of examples of this done, done well or done poorly. And I think a big mm. part of it, it, it's about the leader being conscious of mm -hmm. the fact that their people are responding to the culture that they're creating. So for example, I've had leaders who would send emails on the weekend mm -hmm. and there was no clarity given to the junior people in the team that they didn't expect a response over the weekend. And in the military, right. a badge of honor is working around the clock. Oftentimes. Not only in the military. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, but just, you know, just giving, you know, those sure. that aren't familiar a sense that that sure, is Sure, sure, sure. No, that helps. A, a badge of honor, of honor. And the same is true with staying late at the office or, you know, always being accessible. So I, when I hear you talk, I think about those leaders who have done this well that I've seen. I don't know that they were doing it intentionally, but who maybe at the end of the day at six o'clock would go around to the people that were still in the office and ask them, hey, what are you working on? And clarify yeah. from the leadership perspective, hey, you know what? That can wait till tomorrow. I don't know if I made that clear to you, but that yeah. can absolutely wait till tomorrow. Or I've had a boss, for example, who made it very clear when she first took over, hey, if I send you an email on the weekend, I do not expect a response unless mm -hmm. I tell you I expect a response. Because again, it's the shifting that, getting into that kind of subordinate or junior mindset that the, the lower level person is going to assume to that I have to do what you know, the culture dictates to be rewarded uh, by that. So those are just some examples, Juliet, uh, that, that I think about as I hear you talking about the leader. You're, yeah, you're, sorry. So you reminded me of a story of a, a different leader on the end of the spectrum, this guy who came up under a very, a very driving leader who was modeling exactly the opposite. And yeah. he would come in in the morning at 7.30 and this executive was already in his office no matter what time he came in, 7 o'clock, 7.30, the guy was always there. And he would poke his head out and say, you sleeping in? Because <laughs> it, no matter yeah. what time this poor man would arrive, there was this sense of not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. So yeah, yeah well, that's I think great. It, it makes me think too, Juliet, about uh, just what leaders put in that gap. I've heard Andy Stanley talk about this, for example. When there's a gap in someone's, your expectations and their performance, let's say someone shows up late to a meeting, what are you mm -hmm. putting in that? And a lot of times leaders immediately put suspicion in the gap mm. versus trust. So for example, if mm. I see someone on my team just sitting in their office thinking, yes. well, what am I, what, where am I going in my mind? Am I going to being suspicious of this person or am I trusting that that person, maybe they're doing something very valuable and thinking about an important concept. So I think it's also leaders trying not to default to that area of suspicion when they see things that are not busy or productive looking. Absolutely. I mean, that's, we talk about that all the time and most leaders would go up and interrupt that person <laughs> and say, what are you working on right in the moment when maybe they were on the cusp of solving something or creating something and you never know, no idea. I also think that that same distrust and trust equation extends internally mm -hmm. that when we push back and stare out a window for a minute or two, 
the critic in our own heads will say, yeah. what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Pick something up. And then yes. that exact same sense of trust of what if my mind knows where it's heading? What if my mind is chewing on something, cooking something that is eventually going to pop into a relevant business contribution? And what if, it, if it's given a little room like a dog to run in the park, you just never know where it's going to end up. And so I think that that's, that's, that same sense of trust can be applied internally as well. Yeah. You know, it, ultimately, this makes me think of the quadrant idea from Steve McCovey, where it seems to me that white space is not always urgent, but it's so mm -hmm. important. And just like mm -hmm. working out, it's one of those easy things to neglect. And that maybe initially you don't start to see the impact of the neglect. But over time, like you talked about with those statistics, that neglect of something that's maybe not urgent, but is absolutely important, you'll start to see the impact of those, you know, neglect over time. Yes, it is urgent in one setting where, so white space can be recuperative or constructive. So constructive is what I've been talking about from a business standpoint, which is I'm doing strategy, I'm coming up with an idea, I'm building something, I'm checking my own contribution, that's all constructive. Recuperative is just the, oh, I need this moment to restore my addled brain and body from all the busyness. And that, that recuperative white space sometimes is pretty urgent, especially now, to be able to take those little wedges um, but you talked about how to reduce. I want to get a little bit more tactical. So the reductive mindset is the basic. And that is really something that you could talk about for a year with your teams and mm -hmm. you'd never run out of interesting corners and nuggets to play, take conversations in places that you didn't go before. But let's talk about email and meetings a little bit because those are the two most onerous tasks. Mm -hmm. And so within the world of email, there's how long or how much. So we teach um, an email editing exercise as part of our work where we're working on word count. And a lot of people don't even think uh, this way, but just the length of emails takes an enormous amount of time. And I think the more intellectual and environment you're in, the more people want to show off these paragraphs of well-worded concepts and direction. But if you really think about the last time you got an email from someone who is a super senior executive, I defy you to tell me it was more than seven or nine words. And that's because they, and they don't even use punctuation. They're not treating the medium like a writing medium. They're using it like a communication medium. So caps go out the window, punctuation goes out the window, writing goes out the window, and content is king. Now, I'm not saying that all of us have the safety to speak like a leader because we're still branding ourselves in our organization, so we have to be more organized than that. But just looking at length is a really interesting place to start. And what you can do as an exercise is you can do an, a copy editing exercise where you cut and paste a long email, do one that you received instead of sent because you'll have less ego around that, and just edit it like a magazine copy editor who's just been given less word count. And just see, can you get the same story across with way less words? And we find usually we can take two-thirds of the words out and still have exactly the same. Because we're just, we're not thinking, we're just typing blah, 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 as our brains are coming up with content. And then if you go back, now, don't do this in your daily email. This is an exercise that you do for a short period of time, and it will sabotage your speed if you try to do it every day, but it's a great practice. Then there's how much email you're sending. And one of the places that we really fall down a lot is in the CC line. This is another one of those common sense versus common practice things. Everybody says, don't CC everybody. And then everybody CCs everybody. Mm -hmm. And the reasons are emotional because we're doing other things than communicating. We're showing off work. We are CYAing, which I don't know how we could talk about within the world of the military, but it's in there. Yeah. We are minimizing risk by adding certain players who are observing the email interaction. 
And those, none of those motives have to do with tactical necessity. And the truth is that 90% of the time an email is supposed to be a request for action and not a request for observation. So if you think about the surgical operating room with that glass observing deck, most of the people on an email thread are just sitting up in the deck and they're just watching the surgeon do his work. We want to be CCing only the people that have their hands in the patient. So what is active about this thread? And a great mnemonic you can use is to wait. You ask yourself, W-A-I-T, whose action is this? So what you're going to do is you'll fill in your CC line the way you always do because out of habit. And then all of a sudden you realize that two of the people are leaders. They have no action. You just wanted them to see you doing good. Two of the people are colleagues. They have no action. You don't even know why you put them in there. You're just so reflexively used to adding a bunch of people on the team to all watch each other's email volleys back and forth. And then maybe there's one dude who had an action. Yeah. on the CC line. And so you're, you're cutting off the email before it has babies and babies and babies and creates all those threads of all those mm -hmm. people. Now there's five yeah. people. Is Ted going to respond or should I respond or should we all respond? Or yes. now there's all sorts of things that are generated from that one mistake. That, I think we can all relate to that. Anyone that has spent any time in an office can relate to that. Can you talk just real quickly as we're wrapping up here, Juliet, about this 2D versus 3D idea sure. that I want you to talk a bit about some, some offer for the audience? Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're gonna do, let's do 2D, 3D, and then let's talk about the quiz because I think they're going to really enjoy the quiz. So Perfect. 2D, 3D is one of our most foundational frameworks. I'm glad that you like it. I love that you talk about it. it. Yeah. So the idea is to put the right kind of content in the right communication medium. So 2D first. There's 2D types of content. Uh, yes, no, simple, fact-driven information. When can you come to the meeting? Here is a deck. I'll meet you at three. Yeah, that's two-dimensional. It belongs in two-dimensional mediums like texting, chats, email. There's three-dimensional content, which is nuanced, creative, difficult, emotion, it's got complexity to it. That belongs in three-dimensional mediums, such as the phone or a Zoom call or in person when we can. 3D goes with 3D, 2D goes with 2D. When you mix the wrong content with the wrong medium, you pay a price. So if you put 2D content in a 3D medium, you lose time. That is when you're sitting in a meeting and somebody is reading a report out of all these things that you could have sent a, a, a memo or do we still have a memo, sent an email around about. When you put 3D content in a 2D medium, you lose richness. And this is when you need to confront somebody or you have a creative idea and you put it in an email thread and you're overwriting because it's emotional and complicated, then they're overwriting back and then it goes on and on. That's because you're trying to squeeze 3D content into a 2D medium and it's not, it doesn't belong there. So if you keep these two categories aligned, 2D and 2D and 3D and 3D, you'll see that you, you gain a lot of time and a lot of richness back. I love that concept so much. In fact, my wife and I have started to incorporate that even in communications with family. It's like, hey, maybe that's a 3D conversation that yeah. you have with yeah, your mom yeah. as opposed to just a text message. Um, so yes. I, I love that you concept. Know, some of us have gotten, I'll tell you on the beautiful side, I have gotten some texts once in a while in my life. I'm remembering one from my best friend when her baby was a baby about a way that I was supporting her. And I remember this beautiful text come through and I thought, I would have paid anything to hear her voice say that instead yes. of in a text. And it was beautiful. Yeah. Um, and are we all deferring now to sending a birthday text instead of a birthday call? Of course we are. But 
the yeah. places that we can remember it personally, I love that you brought that in because I think it's really important. Yeah. And sometimes the conversations that I am like, man, I just kind of don't want to have this conversation. I'm tempted yeah. to say attacks, but then I'm thinking, no, this is something that I, they need to hear my voice. Yeah. I need to be yes. able to capture the nuance. Uh, so and then I, if it's difficult, want... if it's difficult, the moment before they answer your difficult first volley is so critical for communication. Mm -hmm. You're going to be listening to how long is the silence? Do yeah. they have trouble on the first word? What's their tone on the mm -hmm. first sentence? You know, all that stuff is lost in 2D. Yeah, I love that. Well, I love all the, the great work you're putting out, Julia. Keep it Thank up. You. Let me uh, see if I can... You share the screen. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, so we, we wanted to figure out a way that we could actually be helping people and not just talking. So we have created this uh, complimentary quiz. You can take it as a employee level or you can take it as a leader level. There's two varieties. And the purpose of this is to give you a sense of where you are, what level you're playing at right now post-COVID regarding stamina, regarding uh, the possibility of employee fatigue, how you're managing as a leader. If you're really giving people a feeling of taking care, being taken care of, you'll get results back when you take the quiz and it will include tips and tools and some strategies on how to do even better. And to incentivize you, we'll also pull 10 in a week or two and we'll give 10 people a $100 Grubhub gift card just for filling it out. So all you do is you go to howisyourteam.com. And this is a really good tool to do with your whole team. Send everybody there individually. Let them get their responses individually. And then digest it all together and mm -hmm. talk about what you learned. Mm -hmm. That's so good. And, and one, I love Grubhub. I'm using a lot of Grubhub right now. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> <And>, bet. <laughs> and to leaders, I think this is such an area where we have to lead. We have to, I've heard Juliet talk about this before, but the leader has to set the tone and lead. So this is a great way to get a sense of where's your team at and then begin to take some of these steps that, that Juliet talks about of creating a different culture that ultimately is going to make people more fulfilled but also more efficient at work. So I love it, Juliet. And also, where's the best place for people to connect with you, Juliet, if they want to find out more about your work? Just write to me personally, Juliet at whitespaceatwork.com. But our website, whitespaceatwork.com, will tell you more about um, all the things that we're doing right now. We're also doing April and May. We just designated as service months. We're doing a ton of hmm. free. I don't know when we're going to go out on this podcast, but um, just let us know how we can help you and don't let money be a worry right now. Well, thank you so much, Juliet. I wish you and your loved ones the best and your team as thank you all you. navigate this interesting time in our world. And I'm thankful for you and your work. Keep it up. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Friends, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Juliet as much as I did. She has so many rich insights about how we can work smarter and help our teams find more fulfillment in the workplace. If this is your first time hearing from her, I promise you that what we talked about today only scratches the surface of the great work that she is doing and what she can offer you. I encourage you to go to her website, whitespaceatwork.com and check it out. If you enjoyed this, also please share it with a friend or someone in your network. I encourage you and your team to go and do that survey that she provided to get a sense of where people are individually and where your team is at. One of our jobs as leaders is to honestly look at our teams and be willing to confront current reality, even if it's not the reality that you want. One of the core concepts that Juliet talked about was adopting a reductive mindset. So I want to ask you to take a hard look at your own mindset to examine whether you tend, as most of us do, to have an additive mindset. Or maybe you're 
you're already leaning towards a reductive mindset, which I think can be a good thing to help us reduce the clutter and figure out what's truly important. And also ask yourself, what are some things that you are doing that you might be able to eliminate to create some white space? And you can help this podcast grow by going on Apple Podcasts and leaving us a rating or a written review. Thank you so much to all of you that have already done that and have helped us become a top 35 management podcast in our first 10 months of existence. That's just incredible. Thank you so much. Friends, as Juliet said, let's take what is often referred to as common sense and turn it into common practice. Let's not just be people that know this and stay stagnant. Let's go out now and put this into execution today. Life is short. Let's make it count today, friends.